Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. Our guest today is Karen Reed, calling from Vancouver in Canada. Karen has been described as a full-time neighbour and lives a life of radical hospitality. She is a pastor, but as we will discover, her ministry has evolved in a fascinating way. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. The first thing we want to do is give our listeners a flavor of who you are. So what's been your journey? Give us an overview of who you are at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a delightful season of life. I came from <clears throat> pastoring in a, a local church here in the city for um, over 20 years. And in that time was... Um, involved in the areas of mostly discipleship and evangelism as a multi-staff situation and um, involved in Alpha for about 10 years. And in that time, there was just um, a a lot of the church family commuted into the church. And and also there was all the emphasis was on the Sunday morning, which was done kind of in a stellar way. And then when we developed kind of Alpha and um, there's lots of things I started to stir up that people's first impression of church was around a table eating good food. It was very lay-led. Um, people kind of stayed together in a small group for a couple of years of basic discipleship. And so that just continued to awaken a desire um, as I started to see the fragmentation of our culture and the level and and family and community and the level of um, discipleship that needed that that our current programs and I ran a lot were were meeting and um, at the same time I was on our district board and at that point our denomination was exploring um, how to maybe deploy specialized workers into gap areas and so. Uh, one of those areas was urban. And so they asked if I would kind of experiment. And so I did. Um, About 14 years ago, I moved into this neighborhood, which is one of the most unchurched neighborhoods in um, the country, fairly hostile to the church. So even in all the years um, of outreach, which the church building is only like five minutes from me. We never were able to penetrate into this community. The highest concentration of artists in the country. Um, There's about 25 coffee shops within my uh, neighborhood. So we're the real coffee snobs. And I uh, moved into a hundred year old house and just began to embed into the neighborhood. So it has been a very, um, slow journey of living slow in the city. Um, So many personal conversions in this process for myself of learning to live another way uh, faithfully as a follower of Christ. And I'm having a blast at this season of life. Uh, It's I've moved into living into community. It's a six bedroom house and have oriented my life deeply rooted in the neighborhood. I can now live, I sold my car. I um, can fairly much bike or walk, live really about 90% of my life within a 30 minute walk. So it's been a a radical lifestyle shift on on many levels that um, I've moved into a more integrated and slower way of living in the city. So Karen, would you say that um, there was a particular turning point which which called you into this sort of a wake-up call that something wasn't going the way you expected it to? Was there a crisis of faith at one point 
that led you to take this radical change? There was really a convergence over a lot of years of of hungering for more, of integrating my own faith, my own hunger for a deeper experience of community. And then I had said that I would never move to live on raised funds. It was at my age of risking, uh, I felt on so many levels. And at that crisis point when I was making a decision to, to move into this, I was reflecting on some of Oswald Chambers' works that he talks about that the common sense life is the life of certainty. The spiritual life is the life of uncertainty. We're certain of God, but Aslan is not safe. It makes everything uncertain. And so in that process, I, I think everybody comes to a point once in their life, um, Christians, where you either decide to play it safe uh, and move towards status quo or you risk it all. And so that's where I felt I was kind of at. And so I uh, eventually landed that could I anchor my life to the truth that God was good, that he could not not be good, that he's good in his timing and ways and and that he's for me, that he's marked me for life. And could that be enough that I would not insist on anything more to trust him? Because, uh, you know, if we have a little bit of knowledge of what's ahead, we feel more in control. And I was kind of jumping into the unknown. And that became enough that God was good and that he was for me. And so I can now say it's so much fun following Jesus into the unknown. But it was a crisis that I was going to lean into what I've taught and believed uh, in a very practical way that felt scary for me. Um, but has now been a blast. What was it that you found scary about what you were doing beforehand? I mean, there was something, perhaps your, your efforts at evangelism weren't penetrating. Perhaps the, was it the programs that you were running? You were very, you were quite high level in a number of different positions, professionalized position, positions in the church. And you've stepped away from all of that. I think it might be interesting for our listeners to hear what you stepped away from and what, what it was about those roles that you then began to feel a sense of dissatisfaction about. Mm -hmm. It was in the journey. I mean, I was teaching evangelism at our Bible college, just one class a year uh, session. And that, of course, has you exploring culture um, and so I was aware that we weren't using kind of missiology in our very multicultural city. Um, I was involved in the Alpha board for um, 10 years. And so that it exposed me to that. But I and then also the, the courses, 50 some courses, I started to see that our um, Wednesday night gathering of three or 400 people had a very different ethos than the Sunday morning lens. And it was lay led and um, it was very diverse. You could have uh, someone that's lived on the street sitting next to um, a doctor at the table. And so that beautiful dynamic that was so life-giving um, that came around good food and that wasn't around professional leading it. Um, and um, so all of that, and, and then the other is the level of brokenness uh, that I was witnessing in humanity that, that needed a more holistic and uh, a deeper and uh, more intense kind of uh, relational engagement. So even though we invited our facilitators or leaders to stay with this group that they would meet every week for two years, it still wasn't enough. <laughs> and so it was those kind of things I felt like we were moving and, and experience a little bit deeper, <clears throat> but it, <clears throat> it still wasn't enough. And so it was over those years of, uh, of getting a taste of people's first impression being around a round table versus from a pew, of seeing a lay come alive too, um, 
that that was the other thing it was it was not professionally led it had a very different we had very polished sunday services and our wednesday night gathering was not at all <laughs> it uh, we were trying to create as much a sense of being in a home and um so those just continued to awaken in me uh, a hunger for more and it gave me taste of something else uh, that I wanted to lean into. So, what was it like not being a pastor mm-hmm. with all of those schedules and engagements and presence with people and moving into a neighborhood because, mm-hmm. you know, you're running a church, people keep turning up, there's lots of appointments. Now you're in the neighborhood. Uh, did people keep, what was it like? What was that shift like for you? It, it was a radical lifestyle shift on many levels. I often say I had so many conversions in those first number of years. Part of it, and I had given, I was seconded for a year and a half around the Olympics. And so I had been working like 90 hour weeks and when I first moved into this house, well, I couldn't have one neighbor in during that time. And so part of it is I discovered very early that I couldn't be present with people and be busy. So it took like a year and a half or two to keep increasing my margin. And I started to play with the idea that God seemed to minister. Jesus ministered primarily in serendipitous moments we read and uh, the Gospels. And so I started to play with would that be possible at this stage and age of my life? So, Karen, this podcast is called Leaving Egypt. And uh, in the midst of it, we are talking about sort of the pharaohs, the, the powers that keep shaping us and determining us. And you're, you're describing something that I, I think gets at these powers, which is um, even in your engagement with the Olympics, there's a huge busyness, um, which, which is often very true of our leading of congregations and churches and all the schedules we've got and the busyness of meetings and organizing and planning. And you're saying something about when you, when you began to settle into the neighborhood, you began to realize that you can't be present to people in the midst of all that busyness that something had to shift. Can you say more about that? (laughs) Yeah, and that was, you know, really, I was formed, or I would say malformed, in that belief that, um, you know, that you produce. And so I I wrestled with Nowen's idea, the difference between productivity and fruitfulness. I was also old enough that I was, weary of the best that we could bring to the table in terms of our experience and education. I wanted that much more of the kingdom where Jesus, the land lover, tells the professional fishermen where to fish. So I was, I, I, I wanted another way and, and I didn't want to settle for the best of my expertise. And because there was this deep sense of call to this and I was depending in a practical level, at a more uh, intense dependency uh, on God, um, uh, he needed to be all that he said. So, so that was a gift because I think I um, affirmed that, that God was the agent who brings all these good fruit. But really, I operated from a a confidence in my own agency and asking God to bless my efforts. So, um, so it began, I I started to uh, devalue multitasking. Um, I started to value the ordinary. I wanted a sustainable life. I started to value. um, It took me a long time to discover that, that God intended us to enjoy this gig, that it should be mutual. That as I um, was seeking to be a blessing in my place, that it was a blessing to me. That's where I then began to come alive in every area. I don't have anything toxic in my life anymore. 
And and then busyness, which the hyper busyness is so deeply valued. And you're more ensnared even within the church because, it, you know, it's it's good work. And I, Walter Brueggemann talks about, you know, the kingdom of this world that is a kingdom of scarcity that breeds fear and isolation and consumerism. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of abundance that breeds generosity. I think busyness leans us to live out of the kingdom of scarcity. I don't think it's just unhealthy. I, I think it diminishes our confidence in God actively at work ahead of us and inviting us to participate in that. So those were very <clears throat> slow reforming of ways that I, I think I was I would now name as being malformed and honored. And then, you know, um, when your life is so full, neighbors are seen as optional relationships. They they fall off the side and there's no room for them. And so I began to wrestle with, you know, the primary commandments to love God by loving neighbor. And we often say love others, which is true, but really the proximity of those around us. So a restoring a theology of place, all, all those were things that were Kind of percolating for me over a number of years and trying to live into it. The other is I was weary. Now, do I say this to some academics? Um, <clears throat> of the emphasis on cerebral theology. I, I hungered for a more embodied theology of not just seeing discipleship through education. James Smith talks about that we're we're formed primarily, you know, by what we love and our practices form that. So I started to give attention more to my practices that affirmed my love for God. And so those were all massive shifts for me that, that continue to just uh, bring life to me. It, uh, um, I, I, it's hard to describe, but th that it's been a radical shift how I lived most of my life and certainly <clears throat> my ministry life where my neighbors, you have no, you're not coming with any position. You know, I might be a catalyst. I initiated things, but then it takes a life of its own. So unless there's this vigorous active confidence in God <laughs> and intimacy with him, um, you know, we just then, have more confidence in what we can produce and make happen. And you can't, I think I'm an idea person and strategic, but you can't strategize what God has set up in my journey here. It's just way, way, way beyond what I could have envisioned. And it's just so much more fun. <laughs> so you're, you're drawing for us a kind of picture of a different kind of leadership with a, a different posture altogether. And I'm just wondering what the, the kinds of questions uh, you might ask to measure your, you know, the success that you're having. Because in the cerebral world, the, we're always asked about metrics, aren't we? Impact and so on. And I know that you've chosen to step out of that. And I was just like to hear what the difference is in practical terms of how, how do you measure um, what's, what you're doing compared with, say, you know, the number of people that come into church on a Sunday morning, you're doing something so different. What are the things that you mm -hmm. will point to that people can understand in practical terms? Yeah. And, you know, in the early years, I was having to push back against the metrics that were being imposed on me, you know, because I'm listed kind of with missionaries. And so we have those metrics and saying that these, these are wrong metrics. Instead of asking how many spiritual conversations have you had with people far from God? I said, how many conversations yeah. have you had? How many have you had over for dinner? Um, you know, so I, I, I've worked that I think we can have metrics. Um, my emphasis on them is different. I, I would rather measure, you know, how many uh, of my neighbors have I been in their home? How many house keys have I been entrusted with? Um, how many people can uh, come to my door and walk in the door 
because I keep the door unlocked during the day, uh, with confidence, uh, or that um, that we share resources in the in the um, you know within the neighborhood um, that we've moved into the sharing community that that because there's especially in my neighborhood people are so fiercely self sufficient independent uh, neighbors that had been here 30, 40 years that only knew one neighbor. Um, and now we have like over a hundred on our email list for the neighborhood. And so uh, uh, moving toward an independence, I purposely didn't buy certain garden tools or um, house tools so that you could share them. Um, that That's, that's a slow moving of moving. I have um, chairs set up on my 10 foot, you know, lawn area that's, I'm in the city and it's right off the street and between the sidewalk and the street. And people usually would lock things down. I don't, you know, I have a little garden plot that people can help themselves to, you know, that placemaking idea where you're pushing against the narrative of fear and isolation and you're subverting it. Uh, I, I intentionally sit on my porch every morning and have my coffee. I could talk to, I'm like, 15 feet away, I can talk to like five neighbors before I finish my coffee. Very simple, ordinary practices that make you present uh, in the neighborhood and available and and pursuing friendship authentically uh, with no agenda. You know, um, not not seeking to um, impose, but that, that you're, you know, I started to wrestle with it. Could it be the connection, that mutuality of those two commandments, love God, love neighbors? They're mutually because I think they're mutually dependent on each other. And so if I enjoy my neighbor, that's a way to enjoy God. If I discern what's happening in my community, that's a way to discern what God is up to because he always works in the particular can you give us a, an example? Can you think of a person that comes to mind? Yes, there's lots of stories here. Um, one right now, there's um, uh, a number of, of women that especially that are living alone. Maybe their spouses have died and are so fiercely independent. They do not know how to even. So those skills that might have worked to their benefit early in their life or is now working against them. They do not know how to receive. So one I'm currently cooking for every week. Um, and, and like it's been very slow in building trust in those. Another, once we, um, I started simple soup nights uh, in the neighborhood and tried to do it as low barrier. People could come late or leave early and not bring anything, invite anybody in their household. And those started at like 15 or so people and grew to an average of, I don't know, 35, 45 people, um, every age group. People loved it. And we kept thinking, okay, this is good soup <laughs> and maybe some cookies, but that was it. But I think most people gather in their tribes and churches can be tribes where um, this was the first, I think, that gives people a taste of family that there was this diverse group of people that would come together in a very simple way and people have loved it. And then after a couple of years, um, we developed enough kind of social fabric that then when the Syrian crisis happened, um, a neighbor asked me if I would organize the neighborhood to sponsor a Syrian family. So as a neighborhood, we raised 50,000, brought a mother and a 24 year old daughter um, from Damascus, and um, and that was quite an interesting journey. That was beautiful. As I listen to you, um, I'm trying to listen through the eyes and the ears of kind of a pastor out there who's listening to this, and, and which is who you were. Um, and like. How would you respond to a couple of things? One, well, Karen, that's kind of special for you. Um, it's not about what I'm about. Or, or the other of, like, where would I begin to do this? Um, like, 
like it sounds, and, and you you've named this. It sounds really, really scary because uh, let's get real. Uh, where does my salary come from? Like, it, it, just how would you respond to some of these leaders that may want to really embrace this kind of radically shift, but have, it's scary and no clue how to do it. You must meet leaders like this a lot. I do. I was just chatting with one this week. And part of that, he also was feeling the weariness of trying to keep the mm -hmm. machine alive. He's also in a large church and hungering for more. And so, again, I think there is this point that you're going to risk living into what you've taught and believed. Um, and that, that God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven is what we're invited to, that this is God's agenda, that he is out there at work outside of the church and inviting us into that, which calls for a very different posture than what I was in for most of my life of listening. I think also um, the idea of liminality, I remember reading something on that of three aspects it described of liminality, this kind of threshold space that many would say our culture is in now. And uh, three aspects of ambiguity, um, openness, and indeterminacy. And so I wonder if this kind of leadership is what's needed, that you can hold the negative tension of ambiguity. You don't know, you can't control. But it's not with passivity or cynicism. It's with this attentiveness and openness, this discernment, listening, and without a five-year game plan, <laughs> with indeterminacy. So I, it does demand a vigorous faith in the person of Jesus, not faith in our competencies or our structures, but in the person of Jesus and what he's doing in the world. And so that got reduced down for me. <laughs> you know, would I lean in intimate confidence um, to his leadership and lordship? And so, uh, so, so that's a personal journey. And I, I, I saw, you know, this tension of anyone, I would say, that's given their life to the church and have done, and you you have invested so deeply in people that that the current and that's what I was experiencing the the programs and all the good teaching was not enough, <laughs> and it was sucking life from me. So it 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 just on all those levels, uh, I I I had to believe that if God's call on me, that there was another way and I needed to risk exploring that. And so that's what I did without any guarantee, without any assurance, but out of this, it deepened my confidence in, in God's goodness and what he's doing in the world and that he's held me. He's got his grip on me. So that was enough to risk. I, I think also, I say this, I think there was the gift of being a female in uh, pastoral ministry in that I, I didn't have trajectories. I was the first female on a staff where I was. And, um, and so I didn't have, and I came out of a corporate background, and so I, I didn't have this trajectory that I'm going to be a youth pastor and I'm going to be this. And they're, they're just, it was blank. And I was also single, so I didn't have a kind of trajectory that set a course for me, and I had my kids, and that. So that did assist me in leaning in intimacy with Jesus, that he had to be who he said he would be. And so that's been the gift of it for me. And I think that's what is being demanded now of all within church leadership. To, to trust as we've never trusted, and to risk. I'd like to think that the older we get, the more we should have the capacity to risk, because we have experience of confidence of God's goodness. So just one, one quick question, and then I want to move back into the neighborhood, your neighborhood. 
Um, so if, if a, a pastor comes up to you and say, Karen, I hear you, uh, and says, where, where, where could I begin? How can I begin on, on this kind of journey? What would you say? I think a starting point is to determine what location you feel a sense of call to. Figure out the geography. Uh, say this often to even Bible students. Figure out where there's a, a sense in your heart of hunger and desire and or a call to and move into that area. Get a job and uh, start to, um, uh, you know, in the first couple of years, I showed up at every community event. I volunteered at everything that there was an option for. And it was amazing. I rarely saw any other Christians just involved in community things. Started to get to know who were the people of peace, who were the community leaders, um, starting to get to know the pulse of the neighborhood. I just started being present. I started to uh, invest in hospitality. And I think I'd always been hospitable, but it was mostly family and friends. And so, you know, I really started to explore Christine Pohl's work on radical hospitality that was the lifeblood of the early church that was really primarily to strangers and often the marginalized. It was highly subversive. So I started to lean into a lifestyle of hospitality, um, orienting my whole life around that. And that took some time to think about cooking simpler and, and um, being available and having the margin. And um, thinking creatively about uh, being outside too. I started gardening. And, uh, it helps if you have a dog or a baby, you know, to walk. <laughs> so all those things of being um, present. And um, so I think figuring out where you are, I think also having a, a job that it could be part-time. Um, I do think clergy is going to end up being bivocational down the way personally. So I think finding a way and that required me to live simpler. You know, I had to simplify and, um, and make choices around that. I, I moved into community where other people were living here. That's also supplemented rent. So you're, you are, I don't want to give any sense that you're not making some hard choices. But the payback is immeasurable. And so I think there are these hard choices that we're going to either hang on to our position and our security and, um, you know, and, and, you know, I'd be at gatherings and you, I had no more business cards. You know, I, I started to wonder about, you know, that uh, the two roles that have never been professionalized, our neighbor and homemaker and started to value that, which I didn't previously. So um, moving into a location and then you start to, to observe and see, I would walk the neighborhood and pray and start to see where there's signs of the kingdom, where there's absence of shalom, um, started to one by one bridge of friendships with neighbors. And, and then, you know, it, God orchestrates things that you can't strategize. Even when the Syrians, they moved in three doors down from me for the first year. And um, there, it turned out that they were Christians. Um, and my neighbors all loved them. They lived with me for the second year. They'd become like family to us. And... And so uh, Carmen, who was 24, is, uh, she's 30 now, 31, um, you know, was used to being persecuted. And so she would be very feisty. I remember somebody saying to her, you know, I didn't think there was any Christians in Damascus. And she'd say, Damascus, it's in the Bible. <laughs> um, so, so, and even when I normally wouldn't pray at a soup night, we, the first year they were here, they did the Syrian feast. There was about 80 people um, in our backyard and that. And and I thought, you know, they would accept if there was any Muslims. And so I said their practice is to pray for a meal. So 
Hyatt prayed this long prayer in Arabic and Carmen interpreted and somehow that was okay. And I think, who, you can't set this right. stuff up. You can't envision it. So I've had so many experiences that has just um, increased my hunger for what only God can set up. The imp I wanted the impossible to be normal. I wanted to still believe that God could do the impossible and was longing to, to have faithful presence be conduits toward that. I, I would love to talk about so many of the things you think, but the, um, in response to that question, you, you, you moved directly back into the neighborhood. You began to talk about how, without plan and control, you were discovering all kinds of ways in which God was, is present in the neighborhood. And so, after these numbers of years in the neighborhood, what, what, are, you, what, what are you seeing God up to in the neighborhood where you live? One is um, it, the, uh, the number of years, and this is my context. It might not be true in a lot of others, but in my context, it took a long time yeah. to build the trust. There, there was a lot of mistrust around um, the church. And, and not thinking, not kind of that it was benign, but actually damaging. So um, to, to build friendship. So now, you know, even during COVID, um, we put up a tent in the backyard with the heater so that we could still gather and we could meet people every day. People asked to gather. So now the, the depth of with, you know, a dozen people that we've drilled down with that we can go camping with and bike with regularly and um, are invited into crises. And, um, the, the freedom to share faith, you know, have done um, book clubs that, uh, like with Brene Brown kind of stuff, that you can start to really explore vulnerable areas and share faith more candidly. So I'm at this sweet time of having invested so much relationally and building this kind of fabric of care that there's trust. I remember being at a, a neighbor's uh, dinner party and they invited me. They had a political leader there and he introduced me. And, and so she said to me, oh, you're a neighbor. And my friend, the neighbor said, oh, no, no, she's the neighbor. So I think what it would get to be the most trusted neighbor in the neighborhood. Um, that that doesn't come through position. It it only comes through the long uh, work of sustaining um, practices that build friendship, that really seek to enjoy neighbors, to invite them into your life mm -hmm. up close and personal. You're you're inviting people into your life as friends, like Jesus does, so they can witness. Your priorities, how you handle conflict, how you handle grief, frustration, tension. They can see that you're inclusive, that there's a generosity of spirit. Those things, you know, are, are not right. taught verbally. But they are the kingdom. They are, and they catch it. They, you're giving people a taste, the aroma mm -hmm. of another narrative, another way to live. And... They hunger for it. And so it awakens in people. I just see um, this hungering uh, for another way of being. So people are hungering for this, aren't they? Because it's natural, because this is the way that human beings are meant to live. So what do you think yeah. has happened? Why have we ended up in this kind of state where people are so distrustful of each other, so fragmented? What's, what's gone on in the last... When, how would you chart it? When do you think it happened and why? Well, there's um, people more thoughtful like Alan that can speak larger to the long history. But you, we know in the city, um, 
there's been lots of research done that the number one issue in Vancouver, and I think is across the board in major urban centers, is loneliness and isolation. So people have, we're we're feeling the impact of our deep value of self-sufficiency and privatization and independence. And so it's like people are unpracticed in even friendship uh, with strangers, uh, friendship in, in, in interdependence in a community. So restoring the historic nature of neighborhoods um, where, where there um, is this joy of, of interdependency and also the busyness. People are weary. And so I'm always cautious that when I share a bit of my story that, it, that people, especially pastors, don't hear it as one more add-on of what they should be doing. I, you know, at my age, I don't want anybody to shit on me, <laughs> you know, not more shoulds to do. Um, but to, in, to say, is there a way to live? So that became a, um, a metric for me is that I didn't want to take on anything that wasn't sustainable. And I started to see it as outside of God's um, design. If he designed me, to sleep seven or eight hours a night and eat regularly, that if I've, you know, I, I valued so much efficiency, you know, if I was God, you know, just do a little fuel pellet once a year, why waste all this time cooking and buying and or growing food? So I started to expose how the arrogance uh, that I was defying and pushing against how God designed the human body, and that uh, we were meant to be interdependent. We're a community. I wrestled with was it right for singles to live alone as a communal people? The Trinity, uh, you know, shapes that we are communal people. So, so this does this point towards towards a, a shared model of lead, leadership. Because in a way, you're, you're talking Absolutely. about the isolation of the, the, the clergy. And I think a, a lot of our listeners who are in that position may well relate to this. You said, um, sucking the life from me, which is a very striking way, way of putting it, the way things were before. And, and I remember you told me another time about how fragmented your life was. And you didn't realize that until when later when you'd become so integrated so there's, there was something yes. about your formation as a leader which forced you into that individualistic mode of leadership, which which it was in a way slowly killing you. And then you woke up from that and now you're talking about something else. And I, I just wonder what you think about congregations. You've talked quite a lot about the individual leader and the pastors and so on, but what about people in congregations? How can they live in this way? I mean, it sounds beautifully simple in some ways, but often congregations themselves have got into a, a position where they expect to be served by the leader. And yeah. sometimes they're not quite sure how to take up responsibility themselves, although they see that that's what's going to be needed because of the changes they see in the church. And so many lay people want to step up and they're not quite sure. And I think that what you're saying is in a way giving permission for, for, for the Absolutely. kind of lifestyle you're saying being a neighbor calls us to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think in the structure that I was in, you know, you know, we highly valued the best of skill level. And so we, it was professional. Everything was done very well. And so that sets up a lot of things that you, it's very hard to be vulnerable um, you, I was reinforced that the most important thing was that, that I would be an example to people. And so I, I tended to hide my weaknesses and you display your strengths, the delusion of that and the, the pain of that where you're not fully known. And, um, and so, um, I, I think the structure set up this kind of, a group that was the professionals that even though we would teach the priesthood of all believers, our structure 
reinforced a very different narrative. And so um, I think we fail people. Those were the things that I started to wrestle with, that even as a pastoral leader, that I was failing people to be faithful to their vocation, that our occupations might be different, and my assignment might be pastoral, but our vocation is all the same as followers of Christ. And so I believe that and probably taught that, but I, it, I wasn't embodying it in the structure. And so those were the things that I said, how can I embody this within how I live my life? And um, so that all believers would um, comprehend and take the responsibility of God's call on their life where they're placed in their occupation as in their vocation and, and rise up to that and know the joy and nothing you know, I, I feel like once people have a taste of, um, you know, God orchestrating and using them and, and partnering, you you partnering and joining in with God doing, you're ruined for settling for anything less. You won't go back. <laughs> so one of the one of these comes to my mind that these are my words, Karen. So. I'm going to put them in your mouth and you can say, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about, is that uh, there's a sense in which, going back to actually Jewish tradition, that if somebody says, how do I, how do I begin to do this? Uh, you, part of what you're saying is you, you dwell in the place where you are, you're the, the geography. But another way of responding to it is um, gather with other Christians in a place where you don't have to drive. In other words, ask, ask the question yeah. of where I live, but also ask the question of what would it look like if I worshipped, to use that word, in a place that I walked to? Um, that integrating of, of, of these things together. Um, that might sound like a radical step to many people, but... It seems to me it's an invitation to fundamentally reimagine being God's people in ways that are part of what I would call the reweaving of the local, of the neighborhood. Does that resonate with you? Yes, absolutely. I, You know, we need proximity that enables spontaneity and connection and overlap. I go to the same markets and I get to know the people there. I walk a lot of the same streets. I know where the bumping areas are in my community. That and, and I have enough space in my time to be able to stop and engage. One of my housemates, she walks to um, our rapid transit and she says, I have to budget an extra 20 minutes because yeah. I have conversations yeah. with yeah. neighbors along the way. So there's an overlap. I have two churches within a 10-minute drive of my house. And one of them, I would say half of the congregation commutes from up to 45 minutes away. Uh, uh, it's a larger church. Another church, very small church, all of their staff have to live within so many blocks of the church building. And so they they have a commitment that they are this parish understanding that they root in and being called to a locale. And so then um, the pastor is seen like a pastor to some of the shopkeepers, you know, there, there's a sense um, of overlap of, of, of valuing place. When you of course value place, you start to give more attention to creation care there's all kinds of things. I actually, in my own journey of kind of restoring a theology of place, of valuing that, I think it became a natural corrective on many levels for me. Um, so, and then you start to uh, get to know other believers in the area that start to gather and seeking discernment together. So it's, again, not just the grand poopa has a vision from God and what's being called here. Um, but this sense that they're discerning together, and you may facilitate that process, but that God can speak through all and that you're 
this mutuality of learning from one another and hearing together um, that this seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. So working that out in your practical lifestyle with other believers in your community. It seems to me this is going to become even more important as um, the society gets uh, steered and groomed towards a more and more digital online and virtual future that the the real place, physical place, could become neglected, especially in poor areas where, you know, it's not beautiful, the infrastructure is degraded, and people are going to want to go online. People will use online as the means of escape. And and what you're saying is is so profoundly countercultural. You're talking about embedded, embodied, uh, living in place, spending time intentionally, this is, it seems to me, this is a step forward from, a step further that's going to be required because you were talking about driving, you know, and a lot of people say, you know, you drive to church means you, you don't get to know the neighborhood in between. Well, what about if you're spending most of your time online? That's even more of a dislocation from place. So yeah. it seems like one of the things you're sketching for us here is something happened in the way that the church kind of lost its role and got into a bit of trouble and uh, in terms of its own self-identity and vocation. And now stories like yours are showing me that um, God's kind of showing people ways back about how the church can find its, its sort of civic and sacred vocation, something like that. And as you say, it's so important that it's rooted in place. Mm-hmm. You know, there is also a sense that you give up the spectacular, you know, that I, I didn't realize how much I um, thrived on the big, spectacular adrenaline, you know, I, and so you're, you're, uh, the ordinary became sacred to me. I started to value ordinary and I started to see what impact that had with people that awakened something in people's humanity. I started to recognize how many practices I had that were slightly transactional or objectifying because if I was busy I I I had it to be transactional. So again all that online does that. Uh, you know you think about the difference of when you're in a car and somebody cuts you off and your response to them versus you're walking on a sidewalk and somebody cuts in front of you. You likely won't flip them off. <laughs> you know, you're, you're just present uh, when you are walking versus, um, you know, uh, in a car where you can... I, I've we even listened to somebody talk about the difference of the three glasses, you know, the car shield, the TV, and now the phone, and how that has malformed us, where we can stay more powerful and more distant from people, versus being present, and uh, uh, you just are more awake um, to your environment and to people around and all those nuances. So, and it pushes you away from living in the future with your to-do list. Um, And so those were things that formed me of like, I wanted to learn how to live in the present. You know, that if the spirit, you know, throughout the Old Testament, you know, spoke in the particular, in particular people at particular times, that it was, the spirit works in the particular, in the present. That's the domain that we're to, to hold, um, where that was a real shift from most of my life. I lived yeah. on adrenaline and deadlines, and that really pushes you to live into the future. But that sense of being in, being present and giving up the spectacular is really powerful. I hear you saying something about reality, which is where we're being called, being called into something profoundly real, whereas a, a lot of what's going on in in modernity around us is is tempting us away from that, and as as the unraveling yeah. gets probably more more intense, it may get worse before it gets better. It seems that yeah. uh, 
a lifestyle that you're describing of being profoundly rooted, um, I would describe it as covenantal. You you said it's you you had detected in your behavior transactional tendencies before, and you're 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 alive to that. And what you're describing is the opposite. Is profoundly relational yes. and covenantal. You're staying in one place. You're committing to people. You're living in in the real. Uh, that that again seems to me a kind of a way of uh, protecting human life against the encroachment of mm. the you know the pharaohic forms of mm. modern Egypt, which which seek to dehumanize mm. us and divide us from each other. Yes, what you're doing is profoundly. Yeah about connection, about creating those moments of human connection on your porch. Yes. Your your moments on your porch on a daily basis are doing that. And, you know, for a number of years, you just think I'm doing very simple, ordinary things. It doesn't feel you're not aware of the impact. And so you have to settle that I don't, need to measure that or be aware of that. I think we're most used when we're not aware of how God is using us. The one thing that I have now begun to comprehend is how much these small, ordinary, real, deeply relational practices are, are, are explosive to people. They're highly um, impactful, way beyond what we can comprehend. It continues to boggle my mind how very simple um, availability and um, friendship um, it is just explosive to people. A, a small act. Right now I have a table and chair set up at the, on this little boulevard and I have a, a bucket of some games Jenga and cards and I said please feel welcome to sit and enjoy a game and um along this little box of you know vegetables and say I've grown this to share so please help yourself small little things even if people don't participate they read that and it just like jumps upside down of this idea that a home is a sanctuary to protect from all the uglies that you are opening up open-handedness and that you're not living into fear and isolation. You're subverting that narrative and inviting another narrative for people to experience. I have a picture of, um, and I, I think in some ways this is what God is inviting us to open our eyes to and you're embodying, Karen. It's as if, uh, it's as if Sunday morning comes. And I get out, I get in my car and I head out to go to church. And suddenly I began to realize this is Egypt. This is captivity. Mm -hmm. Um, All of this uh, going somewhere with other people out of my neighborhood is actually taking me away from hearing and understanding God. Uh, that, that that's that's yeah. what that's what I'm hearing, and, and what you're what you've been describing in this podcast is at, at so many levels. It's it's kind of like this is such a simple way of living, like the invitation to stop, to be still, to listen, um, and in that listening, to believe that in God's economy, God is there and doing things, and I don't have to have answers to what that looks like. I find that so empowering and encouraging, um, even though I suspect that right now many leaders listening to this might go like, like, how do I make sense? Where where do you even begin? Uh, But the beginning is to hear these kinds of stories, isn't it? It's to to know that there is another reality out there that God's involved in. I, I think even in this time of unraveling, and perplexity, and I, I see the exodus out of uh, clergy ministry, and you know, you you look at the writing on the wall. I think even more um, of this time of overwhelm and weariness that I see um, is this invitation to say, "Can we give up? Yeah, 
this sense that we need to have it figured out and that we need to understand it all and that we need to predict and strategize. So to me, this invitation into the freedom of leaning deeply into God is the one who's bringing his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and inviting us to to join in. We're not the lead and that we get to participate and join in. And so there is a giving up of, I don't know, ego, of a sense of uh, the delusion of control. Um, But it is then an invitation into another level of freedom for me and deep joy of um, that I can just, and I've watched over and over and over what God alone could set up that I could never in my wildest and best skills pull off. So I just witness that so regularly. Like it's just so freeing and, and to stay in that um, posture of, of breathless expectancy. Actually, I didn't finish that with Oswald Chambers when he said that the spiritual life is the life of uncertainty. For most people, he says it leads to despair, but it should lead to breathless mm-hmm. expectancy, which I think is the posture of worship. So to, to really pull, I think this is a time to be saying, what is God up to? And to be expectant of that. I was so discouraged on so few pastoral leaders in the middle of COVID. Instead of the despair and panic uh, of saying, I wonder what God is up to in this. When is he working this for good? Um, And so to, to press into intimacy with Jesus and to, to move to this sense of expectancy that this that I don't have to figure out all these massive world. I don't even have the brain power on to even think about it. Um, and so I I can uh, I, I the life of a child of this um, expectancy of God's goodness and that He has invited me into this and I don't have to lead. I've invited to be following. And I want to be responsive and attentive. It's active. And it, it requires this vigorous faith. And I think of any time in history that um, this is more enticing to participate with is now. Karen, could you give us just a little insight into your prayer life? Um, the practices mm-hmm. that, that help you and maybe... If there's a piece of scripture that comes to mind around what you were just describing there about this time in history and what what we're called to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, um, regular, which has been a lifelong practice of um, having um, an hour or two in the morning uh, that I, I, um, I would consider myself kind of a contemplative charismatic so that I have regular time where I am just actually present. Um, and uh, and so I start my morning coffee where I am, I refuse to get on anything electronically, that I allow um, time to sit, I light a white candle, and I uh, don't get my head in gear. Once my head gets in gear, and sometimes I will journal in that time. Sometimes uh, that's a way often that I get uncluttered even emotionally or things, thoughts come and thinking. Um, I always uh, have time of reading scripture, uh, Old and New Testament, and then having time to prayer. I do uh, a variety of practices in that. But that's been a lifelong pattern that um, I have my own uh, time. I prayer walk in the neighborhood. You know, anytime there's a house for sale, I'm praying on who God would call into the home. Um, I, within our household, we have regular practices, kind of monastic practices, where we <clears throat> pray together. And um, um, so not only for within the household, but then also for the neighborhood, so that we're regularly praying for those that bring God brings into our life. So 
those are really um, important practices. I think this invitation um, uh, to seek the good, I mean, several scriptures that have been formative that in Jeremiah 29, that, you know, those, those simple things that here, um, you know, the Judeans that were taken captive and then um, they're invited to seek the flourishing, the welfare of the city for their own welfare, that it, that it was this mutuality and that they were to build gardens and plant, you know, plant gardens and build homes. This very ordinary way, um, which I've tried to put my hand to, to just start to value uh, rooted into soil and land and, um, and value the sacred ordinary, seeing it as sacred of um caring for you know um how you how even think how you think about food you know we'd often pray at a meal that food is a way to remind us that to push against the delusion of self-sufficiency that we're dependent on farmers and market people and truckers and and that um that life was forfeited to sustain us both plant or animal and so that it leans us to live out of gratitude so those practices that have invited um, a simpler way and a more, you know, into the ordinary that feels more integrated and uh, life-giving. Thank you, Karen. I think that's a wonderful place to end this conversation. It's been a real privilege to hear you speak. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a great joy. Karen, thanks. I, I'm so encouraged to uh, have listened to your story. Um, and I know it will be, uh, it'll raise many questions for people, uh, but good ones in terms of what God mm-hmm. is doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon.